Welcome to Unexplained Extra with me, Richard McLean-Smith, where for the weeks in between episodes we look at stories and ideas that for one reason or other didn't make it into the previous show. In last week's episode, Out of the Wreckage, we traced a series of ghostly happenings that emerged in the aftermath of the 1972 air crash involving Eastern Airlines Flight 401. These strange tales join a litany of peculiar and supernatural aviation-based stories involving everything from the apparent sighting of phantom planes and pilots to the mysterious disappearances of numerous aircraft over the years. There's little wonder that the act of flying should provoke so many spectral stories considering the countless number of lives that have been lost in the process of doing it, from the death of ballooning pioneers in the 18th century all the way up to present-day astronauts. In years gone by, of course, before radio and radar, as aircraft took off into the skies, it was into a wide and vast unknown that they would disappear, sometimes never to be seen again. Even today, despite our constant monitoring of the skies through satellite and radar, as demonstrated by the disappearance of Malaysian Airlines Flight 370, Such mysteries are still possible. Of all the strange aviation-related disappearances, however, perhaps the spookiest of all are those in which the aircraft return, but the crew do not. Stories like that of Scouting Blimp L8, which in 1942 became the locus of one of the greatest aviation mysteries of all time. The Japanese military's attack on the United States naval base at Pearl Harbor in Honolulu on December 7, 1941, is widely regarded as the moment that spurred the US to enter the Second World War. What is less well known, however, is that in the nine months that followed, Japanese submarines carried out a series of further attacks on the US, including the sinking of six Navy ships, and the shelling of the largest oil drilling facility in California. As a countermeasure to protect North America's Pacific coastline, a series of airship patrols were established along the west coast to keep an eye out for invading enemy submarines. Of all the aircraft to use, it was determined that the humble blimp was best equipped to do the job, with its unique capability to hang in place in one spot above the water for long periods of time without needing to be refueled. A blimp, unlike a zeppelin, has no solid internal structure and operates more or less like a simple balloon, employing helium to generate lift. And so in early 1942, famous blimp manufacturers Goodyear were hired by the US Navy to transform their usual model into something more fitting for warfare. And so the L-class blimp was created. At 150 feet long, L-class blimps were equipped with two depth charges to attack submarines below the water, as well as a 30 caliber machine gun and a cabin large enough for three crew. On any given day, blimp reconnaissance crews would typically complete a four-hour search of the coastline within a 50-mile radius of their takeoff point before returning back to base. The mission assigned to the crew of Blimp L8 on Sunday, August 16, 1942, was no different. 
On the morning of the flight, however, a last-minute change to the flight plan was made when it was found that condensation on the blimp's outer shell, also known as its envelope, made it too heavy to fly with a crew of three. As such, mate third class, James Riley Hill, was relieved of duty for the day, leaving pilot Lieutenant Ernest DeWitt Cody and Ensign Charles Adams to complete the mission on their own. At 38 years old, 11 years older than the pilot, Ensign Adams was by far the more experienced of the pair, with over 2,200 hours of flight time in what are termed lighter-than-air vehicles, or LTAs, over the course of a 20-year career with the US Navy. By comparison, 27-year-old Lieutenant Cody had only 756 hours of LTA flight time. Regardless, Cody was highly thought of as a bright, up-and-coming operator in the field and considered to be one of the most capable pilots among his peers. The mission, therefore, to conduct a four-hour patrol off the coast of San Francisco was to be a fairly mundane and routine one. It would prove to be anything but. On the morning of August 16, 1942, the first light of dawn revealed a moderately overcast sky above the city of San Francisco, with visibility good at a range of roughly three to five miles. As members of Airship Patrol Squadron 32, Lieutenant Cody and Ensign Adams were stationed at Moffett Field near Sunnyvale in California. That morning, however, they would be taking off from Treasure Island, an artificial island just to the east of San Francisco, between the city and the mainland. From there, they were to head west, out over the Gulf of Farallonis, toward the Farallon Islands, before heading north to Point Reyes, then circling back to Moffett Field. At 6.03am, Wing Control gave Cody the order to take off, and moments later, they were floating high into the air, heading out over the Golden Gate Bridge and into the clouds above. An hour and a half later, at 7.38am, Lieutenant Cody contacted Wing Control to inform them that they were now over the ocean, four miles east of the Farallons. At 7.42am, Cody called through again. Adams had spotted a lengthy oil slick in the water below and they were heading closer to investigate. The crew dropped a few smoke flares onto the surface of the water to highlight the spot, then proceeded to circle it as they hunted for the possible sub. On the waves below them, the crews of a nearby cargo ship, the SS Albert Gallatin and fishing vessel Daisy Gray, having picked up the transmissions, watched on with interest as Cody and Adams's blimp came steadily into view. As the Daisy Grey hauled in its fishing nets and moved out of the area, its crew and that of the Albert Gallatin continued to observe the blimp through binoculars, with Cody and Adams clearly visible to them inside the cabin. At some point, the blimp steadily began to descend from 300 to only 30 feet above the water, where it stayed for the next hour, continuing to circle the area, until shortly after 9am when it rose up suddenly and disappeared into the clouds above. 
Despite Blimp L8 being observed until 9am by the crews of SS Albert Gallatin and the Daisy Grey, back at wing control, nothing had been heard from the Blimp's crew since their last communication at 7.42am. As concern for their whereabouts grew, two search planes were promptly sent out to look for them. It was almost two hours later when the blimp was finally spotted again, heading east toward the Golden Gate Bridge, appearing to be under control, rising to 2,000 feet above the clouds before descending back into them. A short time later, Richard Quam, an off-duty sailor, was heading out to Ocean Beach on San Francisco's west side when he spotted something completely unexpected in the sky heading towards him. It was Cody and Adams's L8 blimp, barely 50 meters above in the air, sagging significantly in the middle. Quan watched as it drifted silently toward the beach, scuffed the sand, then shot up again, smashing into a cliff face with the horrendous sound of scraping metal before edging up and over it. As it continued to drift inland, stunned golfers at the Olympic Club's lakeside golf course on the other side of the cliff watched with alarm as one of the blimp's depth charges became dislodged and rolled off down a hill. While on another hill nearby, members of the Daly City Fire Department, who were burning brush at the time, turned their attention to the errant airship and promptly raced off after it. As the blimp continued to drift listlessly inland, heading over Lake Merced Park, then later Mission Street, thousands came out to track its progress as it scraped across rooftops, ripping out wires and aerials in a steady hail of sparks. Richard Johnston, resident of 419 Bellevue Avenue, who was busy cleaning his car in the street at the time, was forced to run away in terror as the voluminous craft appeared suddenly from over the tops of the nearby houses before it came crashing down right outside his house. Johnston's neighbour, William Morris, a volunteer firefighter, watched in shock as the blimp's cabin smashed first into the road, then into a utility pole, snapping it in two with an electric explosion of sparks and splintered wood. With golden sparks still spitting and flying from the wires and the deafening hiss of escaping helium filling the air, Morris ran to the crew's aid, but as he drew nearer to the cabin, he saw its door was wide open and nobody was inside. When the firefighters arrived soon after, they began quickly slashing at the blimp's envelope, which by now had smothered Johnston's car and much of the street around it, just in case the crew had somehow got stuck in there. But there was no one there either. An inspection of the blimp's cabin revealed that all three of its parachutes were still on board and untouched, along with its single life raft. Two life jackets were missing, however, since the crew would be expected to wear them for most of the flight anyway, it offered no clue as to where they'd gone exactly. A check of the engines revealed the blimp to be in good working order, with no damage to the helium valves and at least four hours of gas left in the tanks. The radio too was found to be completely undamaged. Strangely, a hat belonging to one of the crew 
was found propped up on the control board, while a briefcase containing the mission's classified material was found where it was usually kept, behind the pilot's seat. For three days, search teams scoured land and sea, covering the known course of the blimp for any sign of the missing men, but nothing was found. The following year, having first been officially declared missing, the men were eventually declared to have died. An official inquiry concluded that no fire, no submersion, and no missiles struck the L-8. Needless to say, numerous theories have been posited as to what happened exactly, with the possible capture of the men or even a planned defection to the Japanese Navy, as well as a potential attack from a stowaway being among the more grounded explanations. Two other things identified during the inquiry was that the blimp's loudspeaker, used to contact ships on the waters below, was found hanging loose out of its holder and the cabin's door was unlatched. According to John G. O'Hagan, whose HistoryNet article, Mystery of the Ghost Blimp, from April 12, 2016, gives one of the most comprehensive accounts of the event, one likely possibility was that the door had accidentally unlatched at some point during the journey, with one of the men falling out as a result. In the panic of the moment, with no time to radio the incident back to base, the second crew member had tried to hail his compatriot with the loudspeaker, only to then slip out the door himself. It's a plausible argument, until, that is, you consider the testimony of the SS Albert Gallatin and the fishing trawler Daisy Gray, both of the vessel's crews, who'd observed the blimp on the fateful day, testified that both Lieutenant Cody and Ensign Adams were on board when they first saw it, and neither had been seen falling from the cabin during the time they had eyes on it, from the moment it arrived, right up to the point when it lifted away and disappeared into the clouds. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help support us, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplainedpod to sign up. Unexplained the book and audiobook, featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.com.